Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Should we talk to somebody who actually manages real money? I mean, that's part of the charm of Bob Michael and others here. There's people that are strategists only, and then there's people that actually enjoy losing money when things go wrong. We can do that right now. this dog, Log Normal. Jim Karen, join us in New York. Morgan Stanley, Investment Management, Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. Jim, great to see you. See you. Let's talk about some of the challenges out there at the moment. Are you happy with some of the tools being deployed? Um, not, uh, not from the Fed. Not so far. I mean, interest cutting interest rates. It's like you know bringing a knife to a gunfight. You know, at this point, because it's really about the credit markets. And you know, what we apply whenever these crisis events happen is what we call a AAA framework. And, and the AAA framework is affordability of credit, accessibility of credit, and then risk appetite. All three of these have to have to work together. Affordability, the Fed can lower interest rates. And as as you were bringing up earlier, interest rates are actually lower for investment grade credit today. So the borrowing cost is is is, is low, and that's good. Um, the accessibility, are the capital markets open? Are they able to issue their debt? That needs to get going again. And then will people actually buy those bonds is, is the other question. Jim, how worried should I be about these small and medium-sized enterprises, otherwise viable businesses going through a right. really, really tough time right now? Can they make it to the middle of the year? Isn't that actually a big question? So, Jonathan, I'm glad you're talking about that. Not a lot of people are. That is the most important thing that we should talk about at this point. The large corporations and investment grade and all these indices, they can access the capital markets, plenty of liquidity. They have no problems. Small and mid-sized business. This is a lifeblood of the U.S. economy. They employ 65% of the people. This is jobs. Jobs feeds into consumption. Consumption feeds into GDP. What we need to see is more support mechanisms for these uh, <laughs> these businesses to get bridge loans because these are these are as I like to say these are 10,000 companies that borrow from 10,000 banks that you've never heard of that really okay. are the lifeblood. But Jim Karen, how do you do the x-axis if we're talking about a medical event? I mean, yeah. to be fair, this virus could be good news, clear itself medically from a virological standpoint in weeks and we move on. I doubt that, but hey, that's one theory. How do you do the x-axis of assistance to small business? Well, I think you overdo it to, to make sure that we don't have exactly. a big problem, right? So, so, so the way that you do these things is you have to start to come up with these lending programs. Like the ECB has a nice toolkit to lend directly to these small and mid-sized enterprises. The, what, yeah. the way that it works, for, you know, for the Fed is they may have to open up certain programs where they tell the big banks, like remember, remember September 2019, we had a big spike in repo rates. That's the big banks not lending to the small banks who then lend to the who then lend to small business. What we need to do is have some regulatory changes to make sure liquidity is flowing so that these small businesses can roll over their loans and these mid-sized and small banks can also continue to make these bridge loans and make sure that they're backstopped so that the credit can continue to flow. And if that if that works over the next couple of months, we get through the virus, then we have a viable business to bounce back. If not, we don't have a viable business. This is critical. Back. It's called building the bridge to get to the middle of the year. We've right. got a health shock, a health crisis. It will pass and it probably will pass by the middle of this year. It all depends on what state these small and medium-sized enterprises Correct. are actually in once we get there. And that will define the shape of the recovery. Absolutely That right. will define the upslope. I want to get my hands around the risks we face between now and then if I don't see these tools deployed. Are we talking about bankruptcies in SMEs? Are we talking about airlines going under? 
I don't want to lay it on thick. Yeah. This show has been really, really careful over the last couple of weeks just to be very, very delicate about the yeah. position we're in. But I think there are questions we need to ask, Jim. Yeah, so, so it goes back to risk appetite and willingness to lend, right? So what we see here is that demand is not being destroyed, but it's being delayed. <clears throat> I mean, we, we came into this event you know, with relatively strong footing, and I think that most people would see this as a viable opportunity to make these loans, to get people to the middle of the year, because it's going to be a good, <clears throat> it's going to be a good investment. It's yeah. going to be a good opportunity. So it's not like this is a this is an event that took place that we don't know what the end looks like. We believe that we do know what the end looks like. It's right. just a question of the timing of the passing of the virus. Really important observation, John. And this came after my six-hour day yesterday. My last interview was with Alan Blinder of Princeton, the former vice chair. And Lisa, vice chairman Blinder, was adamant, okay, it's a supply shock, it's a virus, but guess what? It's still a demand discussion, as, as Mr. Karen mentions. Well, absolutely, because whether people are going to travel matters uh, with these companies and whether they're going to survive. I'm wondering, there was so much discussion about lending moving away from banks to uh, private equity, to private credit, to uh, smaller firms. And isn't this sort of stress testing them? Aren't they supposed yeah. to be swooping in here and actually fulfilling their function? Yeah, so, so, so Lisa, this is this is a good point here, right? So the regulatory environment has pushed these the banks out of that business and it's gone more to the private side, more to private equity and, and, and things like that to, to create financing. Well, these these guys are not the J.P. Morgans. They're not the Bank of Americas, right? They're not the big banks that have to make these loans or that you can regulate to force them to make these loans. Th- these are private entities. So the, the, the liquidity may not be as forthcoming, but in some senses, some of these private equity firms have so much capital that, that they're like willing to, to deploy that they may do it on, on an opportunistic basis, but not on a regulatory you know basis. So in other words, the Fed loses control as the overall regulator of the banks to actually enact this policy. So it, it's really now up to the animal spirits to, you know, to actually take this on. There's also a question of how much time some of these businesses have until right. they run out of cash or face material debt maturities. Do we have a sense of that? Because in China, there were statistics that a lot of companies, millions even, right. are, could run out of cash in 60 to 90 days. Right. So we don't we don't have good data on the small and mid-sized businesses, right? Because Wall Street typically, you know, looks at large cap companies and that's, and that's typically the way it goes. But what I do know is that more small and mid-sized businesses, you know, a lot of these a lot of these businesses put you know their working capital is their credit card right they they put things on their credit card they pay off their bills at the end of the month so really what we have to start to look for is stresses maybe in some of the asset backed uh, markets the you know the credit card markets the loan markets in those ways we have to start to be a little bit more creative to see how these small and mid-sized businesses access the credit markets and access liquidity and that's what we need to be supportive of so far what i can tell you is i'm not seeing any stresses in the repo market which is good really really good news so this is not looking like 2008 this is not a systemic event at this point. All I'm bringing up are the signposts of risk that we should start to look at. Um, so far, so good. Um, but we also have to start to look at some of the credit card data and some of the loan defaults and, and things like that in the smaller sized uh, in the smaller sized banks. Jim, let's talk about these markets and get a call from you. 98 basis points is the yield on a US 10 year yeah. treasury. Should I get used to these kind of numbers now yes. for the treasury market? I got used to it pretty quickly over in Germany and Europe and Japan. Do I need to get used to that here in the United States? I, I think sadly the answer is yes, especially if the Fed, by most economists now, are calling for another 50 basis point rate cut, you know, relatively soon. So if the Fed funds rate's at, you know, 50 basis points in, you know, a couple of months' time or in, say, maybe even weeks' time, um, yeah, you're going to be looking at the 10-year note around 1%. Could the yield curve steepen? Yes. Um, is inflation going to come back in any big way? 
to, to push longer term yields higher anytime soon? Probably not. So, and if we're looking at higher yields, we have to look towards the second half of the year. Hard to see what the path of the virus actually takes. Yeah. But the answer is absolutely. These are just numbers, right? One percent's not a magic. It's just a number. Ninety-six basis points, ninety-seven basis I agree. points. It's just a number. It could go lower. Um, but uh, but I think there are limitations before it starts to actually hurt the markets. March eighteenth is the Fed still in play? Oh, absolutely. You think I, another twenty-five? Yeah. Well, I you know I I can't make a call on whether they go twenty-five or not. It's going to depend on what's happening in all the other markets. But I. I don't I don't rule that out. Jim Karen, great to catch up with you this morning. Morning Stanley, investment management, fixed income portfolio <clears throat> manager. The idea, Tom, that the Fed is still in play after a fifty basis. Extraordinary, point cut absolutely extraordinary. From meeting times. a couple of weeks yeah. away. I love what Mr. Karen said there about forget full faith in credit and look at the credit markets is the point uh, over the next uh, number of weeks. A headline across the Bloomberg, and this really shows not the specificity of cancellations, but there are two or three different pilgrimages in Saudi Arabia. And the Umrah is it's, it's considered like a secondary pilgrimage because it's not compulsory, but it's where anybody goes to Mecca. And they've canceled the entire Umrah pilgrimage uh, moment in Saudi Arabia. That's a big deal. It's a broader statement than just canceling one specific thing like the IMF We've spring meetings. We've heard a series put together, though, Tom. It's a series <clears throat> of gatherings that ultimately have been canceled. Yeah. And this is playing into the economic yeah. impact, not just in the Middle East, not just in Asia, but also here yeah. in the United States as well. Little perspective uh, this morning as we bring in our good guest, Howard Dean, of course, is Dr. Dean of Albert Einstein Medical School, the former governor of Vermont. And he and I are of a vintage where we remember the extraordinary events of 1972, which was George McGovern. And I would point out, Dr. Dean, that it was the 26th Amendment where it was guaranteed that the youth of America would show up and vote. They didn't show up yesterday, did they, Dr. Dean? No, they didn't, and I'm scratching my head and figuring out why. I've been reading Twitter, as I often do, and there's a lot of young people on Twitter expressing disappointment, because many of them are for Bernie, uh, but they didn't vote, and I don't understand why. I don't get this. They have a candidate that's very exciting for them. It doesn't happen all the time. Young people elected Barack Obama in 2008, the only time in my lifetime where more people under 35 voted than over 65. So I do not understand what's going on. I would suggest Vice President Biden is not doesn't have the former president's electricity of speaking and events and all that. Does Vice President Biden need the youth vote to defeat Donald Trump? Uh, I think he does. Um, we our party really is young, dark, and female. I mean, if you look at the three past elections, 2018, 2017 in Virginia, and 2019 in Virginia. The, the, the legislatures were transformed, uh, and the average age, I think, of the Democratic caucus went down about 10 years in a single election uh, in the House. So, But our core group is young, uh, of color, and female. And so we need those groups to turn out. If those groups turn out, we win. If they don't turn out, we lose. It's just as simple as that. Well, Howard, let's talk about what was actually happening out, the former Vice President Joe Biden. It was the African-American vote overwhelmingly in his favor. Now, two months ago, it felt like that would be the story. But eight days ago, it felt like that maybe some of that was slipping. What has happened in the last seven days? Uh, it's not entirely clear, but it's more than the African-American vote. The African-American vote started all this in South Carolina. But then throughout the South, he just got enormous numbers. And I, I can't conclude anything, but this is this association with the only African-American president we've ever had in this country. Um, but there's more to it than that. Uh, to win in uh, places like Texas uh, and 
and Massachusetts, which is just shocking, and Minnesota, that was not the African-American vote that carried them. It was others. Um, I think some of this is just voters saying, look, we've had enough of the drama and the yeah. corruption and the every day. Let's just get somebody who we know. And even if it's Joe, who may not be that exciting, when he showed he could win in South Carolina, that apparently struck a struck a match. I, I've never seen anything like this in 11 decades, I mean, 11 uh, cycles here. Do you expect in the next 24 hours that this race goes down to two? No. Uh, Elizabeth is probably going to stay in. She thinks it's going to be a brokered convention and she can be the peacemaker. Um, I don't know what Mike Bloomberg is going to do, of course. Uh, I think he's considering his options. He has enough money to stay in as long as he wants to. And his goals are really broader than just becoming president. His ads have been absolutely fantastic in terms of ripping up Trump. And, you know, he gets a great he gets a big discount on those ads as long as he's a, a candidate. So I have no idea what either one of them are going to do. And so far, as, as I assume it's going to be a four person race into the next big weekend, because I've been asked about this before. And I've said repeatedly, we're not going to know until two weeks. And the, we, the next week is important too. Michigan and big states like that. So this is not over right. yet by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, and Dr. Dean, uh, Michael Bloomberg has said, he's come out and said uh, that the only way that he could win is in a contest- contested convention where the uh, superdelegates come together and meet Michael Bloomberg, uh, founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP. I'm wondering from your perspective, what is the likelihood that we will get a candidate determined by a uh, brokered convention, which has not been used for decades? Not since 1952. I think it's very unlikely. Um, fr- frankly, the optics of that are awful. Uh, whoever the losing candidate would be in a brokered convention, would their supporters would have a very hard time getting behind the winner. Um, I, I just am not for brokered conventions. Uh, the superdelegates have never elected a president. It's always been done without the help of the superdelegates. The superdelegates really are only there. <clears throat> the elected officials will attend the convention, which they didn't used to do until they were superdelegates. Howard Dean, what kind of vice president does a 70-something-year-old gentleman from Delaware need? I mean, what's, I mean, I know it's way too premature to talk vice president. No, I don't think it's premature. What, what's the f- uh, and Bernie's already said this. Bernie has said we cannot have two old white guys at the top of the ticket. He's absolutely right. I'm hoping we're going to have a young woman of color on the ticket. I can think of a number of them. The governor of New Mexico is uh, Hispanic. Uh, there's a senator from Nevada. Yeah. Um, Stacey Abrams, of course, is highly well thought of. So there are plenty of qualified women. I think it's important that we have a woman, and I think it's probably yeah, but important what's that we your, have a Okay, great. But, you know, some people listening to this would say you're going to hand President Trump a second term. I mean, maybe that's President Trump's greatest hope. What is the evidence America will actually elect a woman as president or vice president? This is not just about winning. It's also about changing the country. And if we have to run in fear of voters who won't vote for a woman, then this country is in deep, deep trouble. All those people are already voting for Trump, and we're not going to get their votes back. I've never thought that the way of winning this election is to take a few Trump votes back. There'll be some. The way of winning this election is to gin up our base like crazy and give young people... Uh, people of color and women a reason to vote. Now, that's what's so disturbing about yesterday. That's really remarkable what Joe Biden did, but it's incredibly disturbing 
the young people didn't vote. And it didn't just hurt Bernie Sanders, it hurt everybody. It's sad we're even having this conversation. I'm used to female leaders in the UK. We've had female prime ministers. We've had leaders I'm of the I'm not making an editorial comment. I know you're Dr. not. Dr. Dean has got decades it's of experience It's a simple observation. I think it's sad we're yeah. having this conversation. Howard, let's talk about drumming up the base. I thought the base was fired up. I thought it has been for the last three, four years. Haven't we got to get the guys in the middle? The guys in the middle are going to probably vote with us, especially with a candidate like Biden, because... They're sick of Trump. But I don't, again, I don't, I think we, you win races by firing up your base. That's how Obama won. Um, you know, so I, I think that's the key. Now, the guys in the middle, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll make up their own decisions. Look, we can't stand for nothing as a party. Yeah. I don't want to be like well, Jeremy Corbyn because that was obviously a disaster. But we do have to stand for something. Dr. Dean, I have to wonder, uh, one big question has been turnout, and how much can we read into the levels of turnout that we've gotten within uh, these uh, these early votes? A lot. I am stunned and thrilled with the turnout among African Americans. I was stunned and thrilled by Bernie's turnout in Nevada among Latinos. So this is clearly... Really important part. I'm not worried about turnout among people of color. I am worried about people, mm. uh, young people. Uh, and this that yesterday's result made me makes me very nervous. And I think we have some work to do. Howard Dean, we greatly value your time. Thank you so much. He's the former chairman of the DNC. The consensus for the private sector Friday is 160,000. I love this. We can just about throw that out the window too. So there you go from uh, Peter Bookvar. To get an excellence on which part of this we should throw out the window, we go to Julia Coronado, of course, uh, to give us perspective. Julia, I thought of you yesterday. I mean, the historic moment of an emergency Fed rate cut. With your work at the Fed and with your wonderful academics at Texas, how did you frame the historical moment of that 50 basis point cut? Well, Tom, it was, um, you know, we had anticipated it given the signal of the, the G7 call. We thought they wouldn't want to not deliver. Um, it's, it's, I think we saw the market reaction was not, uh, it's a panacea. Monetary policy in this yeah. situation is not going to fix the problem. Is your laryn- so, the, the laryngitis that you're fight, fighting, Julia, is it Keynesian or monetarist laryngitis? <laughs> well, what I'm hoping is not coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, Tom. <laughs> well, we'll get a test kit. We'll get official surveillance uh, test kit for you. Thank you for being a trooper and being out with us. Let's go hear a sure. bit more, uh, Dr. Coronado, and then we'll cut it short uh, so you can go have a dram of scotch to get through the morning. Uh, <laughs> Julia, when we, when we look at the economics of the moment, how do you extrapolate yeah. forward? I mean, you're timeline becomes so changed how do you look forward one week or to the friday jobs report or even out one quarter well as you mentioned the job report is going to be a little bit stale um and you know the sectors that we're going to look for in the coming months will be say leisure and hospitality travel these sectors are going to be tremendously hit in the next few months both in spending probably bleeding into hiring so we are going to see a slowdown in activity in q2 Judy, are you worried we're going to see this in claims in the next couple of weeks, that claims are going to start to lift a little bit higher here? We could probably see a little lift in claims, yes. Um, You know, we think about the sectors that are going to be hit. Some of these people aren't going to be eligible for unemployment insurance. You're going to see probably the hourly workers get laid off first. So um, it may not show up in 
entirely in claims. Yeah. But, you you know, you, you probably would expect a little bit of a lift in claims, yes. Judah, it's been such a big focus of this program over the last couple of weeks. How do we support the small and medium-sized enterprises to make sure they don't have to lay off people for what could be just a temporary economic shock? How do we right. do that? That's really a fiscal question. I mean, we really need a coordinated fiscal response here. We need some liquidity, maybe through the Small Business Administration, through FEMA. You know, there's all kinds of ways that the federal government could get money in a targeted fashion to affected areas. I don't see any evidence that the administration has plans for that. Um, I think we need to start talking about that because why let this economic hit sort of spread and deepen in in the way you're describing? We want to ensure this this shock. Julia, as a former Fed researcher at the Central Bank in Washington, I'm just trying to understand how they're modeling out the potential effects of the coronavirus, what data they're looking at, what they're responding to. Clearly, they uh, were responding to a material shift in expectations going forward. Stocks trying to take that and figure out whether that means recession. Mm -hmm. How likely do you think that is the outcome here? So I think modeling the direct effects is easier. Say, you know, you can think about the interruption in activity in certain sectors, what we're seeing, how it's likely to spread. The knock-on effects through confidence are the things that the Fed is trying to ensure again, right? The hit to consumer confidence, a broader sense of, you know, pullback in business investment and in consumer spending. So I think that's what the Fed is trying to keep on the tracks, which has been pretty good in recent years, very resilient to a lot of bad news. So I think that's the aim. Um, if, if that gets hit right. and we see consumers just sort of hunker down, then you're in trouble. Uh, Dr. Coronado, in microeconomics, one of the great, great moments is when you have to try to figure out income and substitution effects. And that right. leads to all sorts of ambiguities. What's the yeah. arch ambiguity for Chairman Powell right now? Is it ambiguity about the dollar, about no inflation, yes inflation? I mean, what's the, the unknown out there for the chairman? Well, and Tom, as you, you know, you're, you're putting your finger on it, the income and substitution effects in an older society, lower interest rates can be, you know, more painful to the older generation that's really? relying on that income. And they can, you know, sometimes have to save more as a result. So you get less bang for your buck. Oh, come on, Julia, you're, you're being, come on, get the piece of chalk in your hand. <laughs> Room take, of regret. Get some Vicks Vapor Rub to get you through the, the, the day. Dr. Coronado, you're in a classroom right now. And you're yeah. looking at an actuarial assumption that's going yeah. to 4% or even 3.8%. That's going to turn on its head our American yes. financial society, isn't it? It will, yes. And we are, I mean, Tom, yesterday was a dramatic day. The the drop in yields at the 10-year point below 1%, um, it's astonishing where we are. And, of course, for the Fed, you know, forget the income and substitution effects they're out of ammo, you know, they're, they're running out of tools. Uh, and, uh, and that, that, I think there may be that kind of existential worry in the markets, this realization that, oh my goodness, here we are. Now even the Fed is right. out of ammo. Are we questioning the Fed put here, Julia? Um, I think there's a little bit more uh, underlying concern about that. Now, I mean, obviously the Fed can do QE and they will if they have to. Um, You know, the impact of that is less powerful when yields are already as low as they are. So, you know, a lot of the clients I talk to, yeah, there's a lot more discussion about 
what comes next? What's the Fed going to do and what is the impact going to be? You know, we have a real shock here. This coronavirus, it's transitory, but it's real. We know it's going to hit the economy. So, you know, the the ability of the Fed to insure us against this, you know, I was hoping with the G7 announcement that we were seeing more evidence of the kind of fiscal monetary coordination that we're going to need when we get a real shock, the zero lower bounds. But we really didn't see much follow through on the fiscal side, certainly not in the U.S. So, you know, I think that's that's the reality is that fiscal policymakers are going to have to pick up the ball here. Uh, Julia, you're a trooper to be with us today. Nurse Amy emails in Dr. Coronado and suggests you go to the Joe Coy School and Hospital uh, there for your your laryngitis. And she recommends you put Vicks on your eyelids. And that's usually a good way. Vicks on your eyelids. Vicks on your eyelids. That's from the Joe. She's a staff nurse at the Joe Coy Hospital. Can we make sure that no one takes medical advice off you on this program? You know, that's from Dr. Coy. Julia, thank uh, you. Julia Coronado, the Macro Policy Perspectives President and Founder. Our guests come on with us when they're sick and ill. It's really it's, well because they determined to be on a program, and I think that's a beautiful thing. Did we pay her to do that? We probably did. <laughs> Uh, Jared Bernstein uh, with us right now. And if you're curious about Vice President Biden's path forward on economics and policy, there's no one better to speak to. He's senior fellow, Center in Budget and Policy Administration, um, Prime Policy Priorities, former chief economist, of course, with uh, the vice uh, president. Jared, did you speak to the vice president last night or in the recent days? And how's he doing? I haven't. Uh, he's been a little busy. I've talked to folks on the campaign, and uh, I thought what was interesting to me is that these folks were feeling strong even uh, before South Carolina. They believed that South Carolina was going to turn the tides, and thus far events have proven them correct. Define establishment Democratic Party economics and how it can defeat the president of the United States. There has to be a strategy. My guess is after four years ago, it'll be more overt what will that strategy be to defeat Donald Trump? So that's a two-part question. Let me start with the first part, which is easier, about the economics. I think the way to think about the economics in this case is building on what exists versus introducing a lot of new things. So if you listen to Biden's agenda, he's talking yep. about building on the Affordable Care Act, planning a path towards universal coverage, but not trying to leapfrog there quickly. If you look at his progressive tax ideas, they're building on the code as it exists. How does that beat Donald Trump? Well, it's a return to a more established, normal uh, set of procedures, and it's a belief that uh, what the country craves is a lot less chaos and a lot more order from uh, someone who's had a lot of experience in government. One thing that marked the primaries was the lack of younger voters turning out. And this is a reason perhaps that some people are pointing to Sanders not performing as well as he was expected to. And I'm just wondering if you take this forward and you take this idea that we're probably going to see Bernie Sanders still very much in the race. How significant is it to you that we've got a two-party, two-candidate race at this point where one of them ignites the younger voters, which is the key demographic, and it's not Joe Biden? What does it say about Joe Biden's chances? I think what it says is all of a function of something nobody knows the answer to, which is uh, that uh, if Joe Biden ends up being uh, the the nominee, and you, you make a great point, this ain't done yet. Uh, will those voters switch over or will they sit on their hands as kind of a protest vote? I think the anxiety about Trump having four more years is, is enough to keep people from sitting on their hands in that context. 
But that is the uh, the big question. There's another question, too, which is that Bernie Sanders also still has quite a bit of support and quite a few votes. How likely is it that we're heading toward a brokered convention, a sort of worst case scenario for Democrats trying to give voters conviction that they actually had a choice in who ended up being the candidate? You know, it's a fair question. I got to say I'm an economist and I don't know that I have a great answer for you. I will say this. One thing that really struck me about last night's vote is that late deciders broke towards Biden. Uh, that happened even in uh, Massachusetts, uh, a state he didn't campaign in a lot, where he beat uh, Senator Warren. So that leads me to believe that there is an electability case to be made there. People are, uh, people are just thinking that he, he's the one who can most reliably beat Trump, and I think that probably does put some wind in, in his sails. Jared, you're not doing market economics where you're gaming tenths of a percent on real GDP, et cetera. But how do you envision the economy going into it? It's, you know, the folks, the GDP statistics come out. I don't have it in front of me, Joe, but I, uh, Jared, but I'm going to suggest we're going to get a GDP report three days before the election, whatever. But are we going to have a 2% economy or could it be gloomier to the benefit of a Democratic candidate? Certainly the coronavirus is a, a huge concern. I saw an exit poll this morning that I must uh, admit surprised me, which is that the, the coronavirus impact was uh, high on the minds of uh, lots of voters. And by the way, that tended to break towards Biden. Uh, so it is uh, definitely likely, I would say, uh, that the economy will be growing considerably slower, well below trend uh, by the time when people yes. are, are, are making up their votes. And by the way, yeah. If, uh, if even if we we don't have to have a recession for unemployment to start to rise, if growth is cut by half, which is the Goldman Sachs forecast, yeah. the unemployment rate could be closer to four percent, and that's still low, uh, but it's uh, right a half point above where we are. And we'll be watching claims tomorrow on that. Jared Bernstein, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate your time. Look forward to seeing you in Washington again. Of course, uh, Dr. Bernstein with the vice president a number of years ago with the Obama administration. Right now, uh, comments in a well-timed discussion with David Rubenstein. You know him, of course, from Carlisle. Some of you will know him uh, from some of uh, his public service, particularly with the administration of uh, President Carter. This was a few years ago. And now he's become a TV star with piercing interviews with an eclectic group of world uh, uh, thought leaders and decision makers. And I always bring up, of course, his, I thought, definitive interview with Mr. Bezos. Um, It will be tonight, 9 o'clock on Bloomberg Television. I want to begin first with Mr. Rubenstein talking to his good guest, the governor of Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund. Let's listen in. Now, you have said, I think publicly, you would like it to be the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world at some point, and you'd like it to get to a trillion dollars. Two trillion dollars. Two trillion dollars. Yes. So when do you think you'll be able to get to two trillion dollars? The number looks really big because, you know, the largest sovereign wealth fund today is about one trillion. Uh, We think that it's very much achievable by 2030. All those different things require a big staff to manage. How big is the PIF staff today? When we started, it was uh, 40 people. Today, we're uh, more than 700. By year end, uh, our target is to have more than 1,000 full-time employees uh, in PIF. 
This deserves at least a one-hour conversation. It could be one of those panels where I would discuss this with Mr. Rubenstein. Instead, we've got too few minutes to talk about this. David, there's any number of ways to go here uh, with this effort by Saudi Arabia. What makes this effort of a sovereign wealth fund different from so many others we're aware of? Well, this sovereign wealth fund came out of the blue in many respects. Some of the well-known sovereign wealth funds, like the Kuwait Investment Authority, the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, Mm -hmm. the Government of Singapore Investment Company, they have been around for decades, generations in some cases. The sovereign wealth fund in Saudi Arabia is relatively new, while um, the head of it, uh, Mr. Al uh, Romanyan, has uh, been the head just for a couple years. It actually was started, PIF fund, in 71, but it was relatively modest. Under his leadership, it's now becoming, as he hopes, uh, one of the biggest in the world. He uh, was an investment, a commercial banker in Saudi Arabia. He's a native of Saudi Arabia. And he was uh, pick, picked by uh, MBS to, to lead the PIF fund. And he's built it up into a very, very considerable force. Obviously, the IPO of Saudi Aramco has given it more resources. And I should say he was also appointed to be the chairman of Saudi Aramco, in addition to the job he now has as being the, the head of PIF. So he's got two big jobs in Saudi Arabia now. Is the Sovereign Wealth Fund a bolt-on to the House of of Faisal? Is it a bolt-on to the royal family? Or can it be discreet and also separate from the social debates of the kingdom? Well, they've hired a lot of investment professionals from the West, though they have a lot of people as well from uh, Saudi Arabia. It's designed to get the highest rate of return that you can legally do without taking undue risk, but it also has a different mission. They also want to uh, uh, have people come into Saudi Arabia and invest there. So they might invest with people who will invest in the kingdom as well as people who will invest and get good rates of return outside. So it's got a dual mission in that sense. Uh, Just because of time, uh, David Rubenstein, give us one vignette of this important conversation. What was something that surprised you uh, from the governor? Uh, I think it's surprising that he doesn't seem to be under undue stress. I mean, in my case, I was running uh, as the chairman of the Saudi Aramco and also running the PIF, and and, and MBS is deeply involved in both of them. You'd think he would have... um, you know, been under more stress, but he seems to be relatively relaxed mm-hmm. about what he's doing. And, and I think a very engaging person. He's come to be well known in the investment world in recent years. In fact, we did this interview at a large private equity conference. And, uh, you know, he attends com- private equity conferences. He's involved in a lot of investments directly. He's on the board of Uber, where the fund made a direct investment before they went into the Vision Fund. And he is uh, the person who, uh, right. with MBS, <clears throat> made the decision to go into the Vision, the Vision Fund, the first one that, where they right. committed $45 billion to it. David Rubenstein, one final question. You were brought up in a regime of 6 7 and 8% rates. I don't want to you know, give away uh, Mr. Rubenstein's young age, but this was a few years ago. How does your world spin with a 10-year yield of 0.9522%? It's hard to believe because you're referring yeah. to the days when I was in the Carter administration where interest rates were much, much higher. It's hard to believe that the, uh, the Treasury is now below one. 1.0, mm-hmm. uh, but that's the world we live in, and I suspect it could go lower because I'm not sure we've seen the last of the uh, interest rates declines from the uh, from the Federal Reserve. David, thank you so much. David Rubenstein, peer-to-peer conversations with a gentleman uh, from the Carlisle Group. This is an extremely important interview, uh, particularly for our global audience. Saudi Arabia's public investment funds, Yasir al-Rumaya and their governor. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. 
before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 